Hello, everyone. I'm Lee Green, and welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders in all walks of life. So we'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode five of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we've got a great interview for you with Courtney Ream. Courtney is the co-founder of M13, a consumer product-focused brand development and venture capital firm based here in Los Angeles, along with angel investing and building an impressive portfolio packed with top startups, including Pinterest, Lyft, Ring, SpaceX, Warby Parker, Birchbox, Shake Shack, Headspace, ClassPass, Thrive Market, and Surfair, just to name a few. Courtney also co-founded Vive Spirits with his brother and is a best-selling author of the book Shortcut Your Startup. Courtney shares with us how he went from working at Goldman Sachs to building Vive Spirits from a two-person startup to one of the fastest-growing independent liquor brands in the U.S., which was acquired in 2016. He talks with us about one of his biggest failures, what he learned from it, what it was like to get his company acquired, and how he thinks about managing burnout. Tune in for all this and more, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for your time and joining us um, on the show today. We met, I'm still trying to figure it out, is it like four years, three years? It was a long time ago when I was, I was thinking, Pitching you, where away? Version one. That sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to look back at old emails, but I would say at least three years ago, yes. Yeah. And I don't even remember who originally connected us. I don't know either, actually. I was trying to think of that. I was like, how the hell did we get connected? I think actually maybe I connected with you on LinkedIn. I think it was cold. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that would be rare because I very rarely can get through the LinkedIn inbox right. these days. So it either caught my eye or someone connected us, but let's yeah. go look at old emails. We'll have to figure it out. Viv Vodka actually sponsored my uh, first female founders event here in LA. I that's remember that. Right. That was yes. awesome. We sponsored a lot of great events with Viv. So yeah. that's what I kind of miss more than most parts of it is actually just some of the great partnerships we did and, and just going to fun events I wouldn't have otherwise known about, met a lot of great people. Yeah. Thanks again for that. <laughs> Pleasure. Well, one of the perks after you sell your alcohol brand, the only two things I have left other than a little bit of a royalty for a few more months is uh, an email for life and some free samples. So don't rule me out of the future. <laughs> I can't wait to hear about the acquisition and how that went. But let's start way back from the very beginning. Like, where are you from? Tell me about your childhood, your relationship with your brother, your family, that kind of stuff. Sure. I am was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but left when I was a little over two years older than my brother. So left before he was a year old. So let's say I left when I was about three. He was about one. Moved to Chicago, which is basically where I grew up. And family-wise, just kind of had a very... I don't know if it's even called normal anymore, but just a great nuclear family. One other sibling, a younger sister. So my brother, sister, and I are each like two and a half years apart and two amazing parents and grew up, you know, living the Midwest suburb life of uh, Chicago. Nice. And so how long were you there? 
So I, I guess I started there in pre-K and lived in Chicago until college and then went away for college. And I mean, of course I've been back, but so to speak, but never lived another day in Chicago since I was 18. All right. And so growing up with your siblings, were you very entrepreneurial or how were you as a kid? I mean, just a different time, even though I'm not that old, because I don't think I even knew what the word entrepreneur meant. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I could say by the time I left Chicago at 18, I had never used the word entrepreneurial. But I think, you know, my dad's dad, my grandfather was a lawyer and my dad went to law school, but never ended up practicing law. Hmm. And so I think we're all kind of negotiators and by trade and kind of I have a very salesy personality, even when I don't mean it, when I just find someone or something I'm passionate about, I'm kind of always, it always feels like I'm persuading, even when I don't mean to be. So that's probably the most practical genesis of entrepreneurial roots is that even if it just comes a good old fashioned persuading your parents to get them to do something you want to do, I think there's an entrepreneur angle in that. Do you have a story that you want to share about a time when you persuaded your parents to do something? Well, again, I was not exactly the lemonade stand, but the one that comes to mind, and it's not really a great story so much as a testament to how great my parents were, but I got really into baseball card collecting. So like, I don't know, baseball cards then were like esports are now or something, just a lot less lucrative. But I mean, I had a baseball card collection that was probably worth, you know, $10,000 20 years ago. So that yeah. multiplied by the price that some of them have gone to multiplied by inflation, you know, would be a good little bit now. And um, my parents were just really against it because I started like exhibiting at these baseball card shows. They started driving me around and they were like, okay, well, if you want to do this, we're never going to take you to a baseball card show. And I remember like a couple months later, my dad's like, how did this happen? I've taken you to like, my whole weekend is driving you to baseball card shows. Cause I was so like, serious? you know, like 12 years old. So he's like dropping me off, picking me up. I'm like showing him the money I made, but That's I don't awesome. even know if that was persuasive so much as just like my parents being super, super loving and selfless, which they are. That's cute. So college, where'd you go? I am a proud lion, which could be a lot of schools, but in my case, it's Columbia University in New York. Nice. So I uh, actually came within a hair of going to a couple other places. I was lucky in that I was a good athlete and especially soccer. So my team in high school won the national championship and I, within reason, pretty much had my choice of schools based on soccer and academics, but obviously the soccer piece was needed there. So I was supposed to go to Stanford on a soccer scholarship never showed up. And, um, at the last minute through a long, weird story, ended up meeting the admissions director from Columbia who, this was right around Thanksgiving and anyone that has kids in college or if they remember applying, they would remember that, uh, Thanksgiving is very late to be applying to schools or, or not have your applications. Right. Right. The head of admissions would have normally never have come to, let's say my very middle of the road, Chicago public school, but his brother happened to live nearby. So you'd have to know him too. But uh, he said, oh, I'll, I'll do these couple school visits and cut out a little bit early. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I already thought I was into college and I went, oh, they're doing like third period Columbia University. My mom actually went to Columbia for business school. So I'm like, oh, I've heard of it. It's in the Ivy League. Huh. Sounds like a good way to get out of third period. <laughs> and um, so we were both kind of thinking the same thing from yeah. different angles. Long story short, we end up having this conversation afterwards and just really, I think both gravitated toward each other. And being honest, my first thought after I started talking to him after his whole presentation was, gosh, this is great. This guy talks a lot. I could probably skip fourth period too and get a note for it. Um, And then at some point the script flipped and 
I really started to enjoy the conversation. And I went home that day and said to my parents, oh, I think I might want to look at some other schools. New York City sounds pretty cool. And I remember my dad saying, well, that's great. And you can do whatever you want. But just so you know, I don't think the head of admissions came to your school, you know, like they would never quite go to your school. And I said, okay. And I, you know, I was always kind of into, uh, making my dad proud and maybe proving him wrong a little bit. So I walked downstairs, marched back up, showed him the card. And my dad looked at it and was just kind of like, huh, which he was very rarely at a huh, which led me to believe that I was right this time. Yeah. And, um, the rest is history. That was like a couple of days before Thanksgiving. I went the following Monday to take a tour of Columbia. And as cheesy as it is, I think I had that aha epiphany moment riding one of those, I think they've repainted them now, but at the time, the red double-decker buses going through like Times Square going, gosh, this would be a cool place to go to college and you get a great education. So yeah. I did it. Nice. So you went to school at Columbia and mm-hmm. then how was that? What did you, did you study business? The most of the Ivy League schools don't have like business in the traditional way, maybe like Wharton within UPenn, but um, so it tends to be more broad-based liberal arts and Columbia is similar. So they have this core curriculum, which is both painful and great, meaning no matter what you're interested in, you will take a certain amount of like well-roundedness, Renaissance man, that I say that gender neutral classes. So I had to take a music humanities class, an art humanities class, a philosophy class, and it's pretty cool because you are in New York City. So pretty much besides almost any other school in the country and, and in the world for that matter, the teacher would say, hey, so we're going to do class today here. And on Wednesday, your homework is to go to the Met and go check these things out live or the MoMA. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. But uh, I ended up taking an intro. F- it was called Contemporary Western Civilizations, but it was basically an intro philosophy class. Got pretty interested in it and ended up majoring in both economics and philosophy. Cool. And so at that time, what were you thinking you were going to do with that? What was the plan? I don't know if I think, I mean, most kids I meet now or interview for Columbia or or for Harvard or wherever, they have much more of a plan than I had. My plan was to play pro soccer, not really want to ever graduate because life was pretty good. And, you know, was kind of like trying to go on the five and six year plan, even though my parents weren't really down for that. I didn't really have a plan. I think if anything, I was not the person always knew what I wanted to do. So most of what I did, I would say, was around, you know, just doing the best I could in the time I was at and the situation I was at to preserve option value until I figured out what I wanted to do. And, and my parents, uh, especially my dad, I think was very good about emphasizing that, you know, life's just about options. And so the more options you have, the better it'll probably turn out. And, yeah. you know, some people debate, do you send your deathbed and say, oh, I wish I worked more or I wish I worked less, or I spent more time with my family, or I spent more time on this. I don't know. There's days where I feel like I wonder if I want to work more or less on my deathbed, but I don't think anyone sits on a deathbed and goes, I wish I had a different set of options. And that usually comes from decisions you make pretty early on, you know, probably going into like younger adulthood, but certainly by the time you get to college, you know, certain options are open and closed based on where you're at. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. A lot of people don't really talk about that. So what kind of early jobs did you have? Like, did you have internships or? Well, it was the good old days where like, if you want to be an investment banker after school, you didn't need to do like three summers at an investment bank the way they do now. You could just get away with doing like one. So it was like, I always knew working back that the summer before senior year was going to be like a miserable one. But then after my freshman year, going into my sophomore year, well, that summer I didn't do a whole lot. I still had the dream of playing pro soccer before I tore my 
left ACL on the first day of captain's practice. Oh my gosh. And so that summer involved my parents supporting me a little bit, playing soccer every day, and then subsidizing that with a little bit of time at IHOP. And um, again, not entrepreneurial, but I knew I was good at sales when I could upsell someone on the Lingonberry Kreps with repeated success. Um, <laughs> so about this ACL, because the audience has no idea that you're sitting here right now with having just had surgery on your other leg and your other ACL, correct? Correct. Right. Oh my gosh. So now I have matching ones. Matching ACL surgeries. Exactly. Oh my God. Okay. Well, so going back, you, your career path, you were able to upsell, you learned early on, you're like, I'm really good at sales. This is going to work for me. What was the next right. job you got? So the that? next job, the next summer... I decided to stay in New York City that summer. And it was an interesting one because I knew I had to do something real to kind of pay the bills, but I wanted to do something fun. So I gave campus tours nice. several days a week and I was pretty good at it. I always used to joke that if you saw, if you came to Columbia's campus, which is really beautiful for anyone that hasn't been right in you know the middle of New York City, if you came on a sunny day, there's like, I had like a 90% hit rate of convincing you or your kids to go. And then, so I did that. And then I am actually, you might be too young, Lee, but do you remember the restaurant guy called Zagat? Z-A-G-A-T? Yes. Right. So it's like yes. a restaurant guy. That looked like genuine recognition there. So I'll go with it. No, um, it is. A hundred percent. So before like the internet-ish, Zagat was like, just like this little maroon restaurant guy and everyone used it. Most people over the age of like 50 still do. It was actually bought by Google and it was like the preeminent go-to restaurant guy for all things New yeah. York. So I actually am unofficially, but officially in my mind, the creator of their summer internship program. So I emailed them to say I want an internship. This isn't like so long ago, but early 2000s enough that like they weren't responding to emails. So I was like, oh, maybe these people don't use email. Turns out they don't. So I found out their phone number, started calling them, wrote a couple letters. I'm not even kidding. It was like, I have a movie where... One day someone just picks up, I, I don't know how I still remember his name is Benjamin Schmerler, but like <laughs> he picks up and he goes, yeah, yeah, I've got your message. I've got your calls. Fine. We don't have an internship program. I was like, great. And I started talking. He goes, fine, fine, fine. You can come in three days a week, $7 an hour. See you on Monday. Perfect. And there we go. So I'm the founder of the Zagat internship program. So sometimes we do those fun games, like two truths and a lie. One of mine is like, I am a food critic and I can prove it, you know, cause I actually have a, a business card from Zagat. So that was that summer. <laughs> That's funny. I actually do know. And I think I paused because you had, once you spelled it out, I was like, oh yeah, I think I called yeah, it Zagat. Like Zagat's and stuff. <laughs> exactly. Literally people can't see, but there's a whiteboard here in my office. There was, when you walked in the office, there was almost, you know how when you look in a dictionary, it tells you the pronunciation. Mm -hmm. There was a pronunciation because the, it was called Zagat because the founders were Tim and Nina Zagat and they were characters in and of themselves. But it was like Zagat and it kind of had a definition then had a pronunciation. And then usually when they do a pronunciation, they kind of do a phonetic thing. So it said Zagat mm -hmm. rhymes with the cat, like <laughs> okay. the cat. So nice. I couldn't get it right either. So like the first week, I mean, I'm like, watch, you know, coming right here and I'm like Zagat rhymes with the cat. Zagat rhymes right. with the cat because someone was like, so if you mispronounce their name in front of them, that's probably a yeah, quick way to that. be the first and last summer intern right. they ever had. Totally. Okay, so you worked at Zagat, mm -hmm. and then what happened? School year came and went again. Then it was senior year. The dream of playing pro soccer was dying a little bit. Time to get a little serious about the real world, even though I was reluctant and uh, did the proverbial, as we talked about, did as you do and you don't know what you're going to do and wanted options, and um, thus investment banking. Why? So, 
my dad was in finance. I think, you know, looking back, I wasn't necessarily like a finance guy, but I am good with numbers. And I think that there's worse things in the world than doing investment banking. It's great training. It's hard work. Probably any job you have in your life after that, you go, oh, okay, this is like better from an hour's point of view. Or, you know, I think people are treated a lot better now. And I was never treated like horribly, but like for sure many, many a weekend, someone walked over to my desk Friday night at like seven or eight o'clock. I was like, Hey, what are you doing? I'm like, Oh geez, here it comes. Like there goes my weekend. Yeah. And they would, but it was just kind of the culture. Nobody was like abusive or mean. It's just, just how it was. Yeah. So I got an internship at what's now JP Morgan Chase back then was just Chase Bank. Mm-hmm. And I worked for them in Chicago. All right. So how was that experience and what did that lead to? So that led to more unsureness about what I wanted to do, which led to more investment banking. Um, no, it wasn't. It was it was an interesting experience. I think, you know, when you don't know anything, you don't know anything. So it's all kind of interesting as long as you have the right beginner's mindset. And so you're having like beginner's mindset. Well, you work 70, 80 or more hours a week. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually did an interesting thing because I graduated a little bit after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And so it was a bad economy. A lot of other things were going on. And so especially in investment banking, they always overhire. And so, you know, the analysts coming in are like the lifeblood of what you do. So you can never like not, you can never renege on analyst offer just the, the way it looked or your future stream of talent. It would be horrible. What they did was they said, oh, anyone who thinks they might not want to show up this year, we will give you a stipend, not like a salary, but a stipend to live off of for the next year. And you have a guaranteed job in a year. And I was like, hmm, let me think. Hand goes up. I'll take that one. Yeah. So for a year, I ended up kind of doing a mishmash of some acting, some traveling, few business ideas that weren't really like fully baked. And then when that all kind of wore off like a year later, I was like, okay, I've pretty much out of money and it's time to get the show on the road and be an adult. So I was originally supposed to work at Goldman Sachs. Then they wanted me to start. Actually, I now that I think it's been a second since I've thought about this, I actually prolonged it for nine months. And then I wanted to start. They said, you need to wait four more months. I was like, wasn't bored, but I was just kind of like out of money and everything else. So I ended up actually getting a job slightly off cycle with Citigroup, worked in investment banking and mergers and acquisitions for them for a short time, which I now looking back feel slightly bad about. I was only there six months. And when kind of my same job opened up at Goldman Sachs, I um, promptly moved over there. Okay. So is that where you came up with your company or how did you get from there to founder? So I got from there to founder by... I always knew compared to the average person at Goldman Sachs, I wasn't smart enough to do like financial services or like the super in-depth stuff. So I was like, consumer products sounds good. I want to work in consumers. So I was at Goldman Sachs when the merger of Procter & Gamble Gillette happened, which was, was, and I think still is the biggest consumer products merger in history, almost $50 billion merger. So that was one lens. And then on the flip side, just by dumb luck, I got staffed on quote unquote entrepreneurial things by Goldman Sachs standards. So I worked on Vitamin Water's first deal, not a product I endorse, but like an incredible brand and marketing story. A couple of really good key insights there as to how you build a brand. And then the one that kind of changed it all for me was working, um, helping take Under Armour Public. And um, I actually saw Kevin Plank last week, who's the founder of Under Armour, who's amazing and still continues to be an inspiration. And, you know, he's, he's one of those people where you look at him and at the time I was like 24 or something, he was like, I don't think even think 34, but something like that, maybe mm-hmm. even less, 32, 33. And I went, gosh, if he can do it, I don't know if I can, but here's a guy that just does like grit, moxie, and a good idea. 
Yeah. And he, and he was doing it. So that, I think, I don't think I knew it at the time because it's not like I, I had that epiphany and left a month later. I had that thought. It kind of percolated and ruminated. And then about 18 months later, I ended up leaving to do my own thing. And so how did you come up with the idea? Well, I had worked on a few alcohol deals, a few spirits brands at, at Goldman. And turns out it's a very different experience on the ground than it is what you read in a 10K or <laughs> a 10K. Thought? Yeah, I mean, gosh, <laughs> at 27, that and a good, the fact that it sounded fun was enough to go off of. But um, yeah, I worked on a couple spirits things and just thought it was a fascinating space in terms of like who innovates, how they innovate, and then certainly like some of the success stories of like the Grey Gooses of the world where I might have my number slightly off because it's been a few years, but Grey Goose is a fairly mature brand, got bought by Bacardi for 11 and a half times sales and 23 times free cash flow for over $2 billion. And there are just not many other industries where you see that. Right. And so I thought, wow, if I'm even like a quarter of Grey Goose, life will be pretty good. Turns mm-hmm. out turns that I wasn't even a quarter, but we still did pretty well. <laughs> nice. So you decided I want to do a spirits company. Why did you go in the direction you did? How did you come up with the name? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the proposition was not easy, but it was just very like created in our own vein in, insofar as at the time I was, you know, going out a lot in New York City, doing the proverbial burn both ends of the candle. And most of my friends were just kind of sheepishly drinking like by sheep. I mean, like, you know, fast followers kind of drinking like it was much more of a vodka white spirit world than, than now is kind of more of a whiskey world. But I've been told by people who've been doing it longer that it's a pendulum industry. So every 15, 20 years, it kind of swings both ways. So, you know, probably another five years, it might swing back to kind of vodka and white spirits. But so it was all, all vodka. I never even thought about any other category like whiskey or tequila. And um, I was going out drinking Grey Goose soda, Red Bull vodka. And I was like, there's got to be more to like, you know, food's gotten so interesting with gastronomy and molecular this. Other spaces are, but alcohol like has been so slow to catch up. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, the core classes of spirits, tequila, rum, gin, vodka, the list goes on, whiskey, in whatever part of the world they're native to have been around for like, usually like centuries with like very little innovation. So I was at least smart enough, or my brother and I were at least smart enough to go, okay, I'm not going to necessarily create a full new category. Like it's tough to be Kleenex, the product and the category. Although John Paul DeJoria kind of did in some ways with, with Patron. But I said, wouldn't it be interesting if we could create something that was kind of like a hybrid or a little different where we didn't just force it into one of these neat little categories and people just went, oh, what is it? Oh, it's Vive. And as long as you know how, to, because my theory is as long as they knew how to drink it and how they liked it, it didn't really have to fit in this neat box. So our whole tagline was a better way to drink. So we kind of said it was mixes and drinks like a vodka, but it wasn't technically a vodka. It was kind of between like a vodka and a gin, even like a kind of a rum note to it. And we wanted to say be, you know, we used to say better your life, your company and your cocktail. No, maybe that wasn't our tagline. Close <laughs> to that. Gosh, it was something. Your life, your conscience and your cocktail, right? So it was kind of this idea of like... You're like, I drank so much of right, it, I just exactly. forget. Well, it's like people are going to always drink. Let's give them a better option, both as a product in the bottle and as a company. So we had the first distillery. It was powered by renewable wind energy. Did a bunch of other stuff around sustainability that would make, you know, that I could bore you to tears with. But like, again, we were pretty progressive within the spirits category for what we did. And then the product itself, which I'm still biased toward, but I think tastes unique and really delicious. And so we were putting acai in there when no one knew what it was. We put some prickly pear in there that helps with hangovers. And then 
obviously we were careful because it still is alcohol. And if you drink enough of it or, you know, you get the people who go, well, I had a really bad hangover on Vive. How do you explain that? I said, well, how much did you drink? They said four cocktails. I said, how long does it usually take before you feel kind of warm and fuzzy? They said about two. I said, well, <laughs> never said it, like won't give you a hangover. Just all things equal will we'll feel better. But that doesn't mean you can act irrationally. But, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Looking for excuses, you know. Exactly. <laughs> so you went into business with your brother. Mm-hmm. What was that decision like? And uh, yeah, tell us about why you guys decided to do business. Yeah, I don't, you know, some of these stories are like, oh, we talked about when we were kids forever and we always, we always went to the same schools and, you know, we both went to Columbia, we both worked at Goldman and it wasn't not the plan, but you can never make that the plan because it takes, you know, a lot of hard work and some good luck and some good fortune. He actually moved out to LA at the same, so I moved out to LA to be an entrepreneur. When I declared that, I didn't even, I probably didn't know what it meant, but I actually really didn't know what brand I was going to launch. I had written a couple of business plans was entertaining some things. Carter actually moved out here to work for um, a big finance firm. And then we had a summer of like doing some different stuff. He felt like, oh, wow, this is, I mean, he probably went, okay, I was 27, he was 25. He's like, this sounds more fun than working at this big finance firm. I'll come join you. So it's definitely my fault. Um, It probably could have gone any number of ways, but yeah, I think my parents, I think felt like there was a good chance we end up doing stuff together. We just never talked about it. But when you're brothers and you've gone to the same schools and played sports together and everything else, I think there was like almost an implicit understanding without it ever feeling like we needed to talk about it. Yeah. So Vive, the name, how did it come up? Well, the real truth that we like barely ever say was that it originally stood for, it was an acronym for Vitamin Enhanced Energy Vodka. Okay. The government did not like me putting words like vitamin, energy, (laughs) or enhanced, and vodka together. So then we ended up just calling it Vive. It kind of stuck. You know, it just, it just, to me, it sounds like a name of a product that you'd say. It's an easy bar call. Hey, you're in a loud bar. I'll have a Vive and soda. I'll have a Vive on the rocks. I don't know. We like the palindrome nature of it. I could go on, but it just kind of, when we did uh, focus groups, however you define those, I remember all the things we were trying to evoke kind of natural. It sounds like life in a lot of the romance languages, like, you know, vive, vive, joie de vivre. So it just evoked all the things we wanted to be. And we weren't even sure we liked it, but at some point we didn't have a name. And so it was kind of like, oh, this alcohol project to be named later. Then it was like, okay, let's just call it V for now as a placeholder. And then, you know, you wear the pajamas enough, it starts to be comfortable and (laughs) away we go. Nice. Did you guys raise any capital? We did. Alcohol definitely takes money to make money. We were very lucky in that all of our initial investors who ended up being all of our investors basically came from family and people that we knew directly or indirectly, but mostly directly from Goldman Sachs. And I would say there's a lot of things we got wrong. One of the only things we got really right was that I knew that this wouldn't be something where, oh, you raise a million dollars and you'll never need money again. I knew we'd need it. I knew we'd need it if we hit certain milestones. I knew we needed you know, kind of almost tranched. So I'm not even sure why half these people said yes, not least of which was my great dad, but they basically said, we'll come like pretend someone said, I'll invest a million dollars in you rather than taking it all. Cause I didn't need it all front. I said, I kind of need it from you, you know, over like two or three tranches, probably over a couple of years, because to really make this work, we're going to need to go back to the well. 
And it just, I don't know, maybe I just didn't know that cap, where capital was available at the time, but it just didn't seem like it was as common. So I actually got a small group of people to basically commit to funding it up front, basically for the whole time. Nice. Which I don't think you would do. And, and it was, these were all people, it was not their last dollar. So they were much more lenient than I ever would have been able to get in the free market. Yeah. Not less on valuation and more on autonomy and control and like just going, okay, if this is going to work, it's going to be because you and Carl will just let you do your own thing. Yeah. So this was your first company. Mm -hmm. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? I mean, at a macro level, the government would never want you to sell another bottle of alcohol were it not for the fact that one, they make a lot of taxation revenue and two, prohibition didn't work. Uh, and there was, you know, anarchy. So that's a tough place to start because they're not, they're always, especially if your alcohol has like a tinge of like healthier. So that made it tough. I think the other biggest challenge for alcohol is that, you know, now with our company M13, we're all about like consumer tech brands and how can you make every consumer brand feel like a media and tech company. And everything we do certainly has to be techable, which is why, although we've made the most money in beverage, we're not really doing beverage going forward as a general rule. But alcohol is the most like low tech, handshake, slow to market business there is. And it's very much the good old fashioned, it's called a duopoly or an oligopoly, but basically where a few people kind of control the market. But I mean, our distributor, no joke, had like tens of thousands of SKUs yet five people paid 95% of his bills. And so if I was him, why? I mean, we were the biggest distributor in the U.S. and I think thus the world. Why would they ever give us a, a second of their market share or their share of mind? Yeah. And they did, but it was like you're competing for the scraps when five people foot 95% of the bill. Right. And what about you personally as a founder in the, in the journey and building this company? I mean, what were some of your personal biggest challenges a ton. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I don't think is talked about enough as a founder is that unless, you know, if you've never been a founder before and I hadn't been, even if you like go into some industry that you know really well, for sure you're asked every day to do things you've never done before, mm -hmm. yet there's no playbook for it, no manual yeah. or no like, you're probably, you're just doing things you've never done before. And so you have to have a really good, you either have to have this incredible gut or really good people around you or everything because I think being asked to do things that you've never done every day is really tricky. Yeah. I think the other thing that was interesting learning and we're, we're trying to atone for it now is that we started a company where my brother and I were very much at the center of it. And when we were rocking, we were rocking. And whenever we were slightly distracted or made a few investments or joined another board or did something that seemingly made me spend 5% less time on Vive. Yeah. I swear it's like, I would know it's like a 5% drop in sales. It wow. was like that tightly correlated yeah. and not to say that we didn't have a great team or that take all the credit. It's just more our focus dictate a lot of what followed from that. And so, um, I would definitely make sure that, you know, even if great founder driven companies, you obviously have to have, you know, the bench depth and not have it all be tied to you because that's a, that's a scary place to be. Yeah, definitely. When was a moment, can you share a story where you really just like face planted? Like you just freaking, you failed, you did whatever it was. You're like, I messed up that meeting really bad. Or like, what was the moment where you're like, oh man, if I could just do that over, I would have done X, Y, and Z or just something that, you know, kind of a failure that you learned from. The first one that comes to mind is that our very first run of Vive ever shows up at the door. We pull the bottles out. We're like 
taking pictures with it. It's so excited. Like, you know, yeah, proud parent, <laughs> first moment. And it was a really sunny day. We were out front of our office, which was also our house. And so we're taking pictures. And I remember looking at the bottle going, huh, I thought it was going to be clear. It just has like a little tinge to it. And my brother's like, yeah, it does have like a little tint to it. But it's like probably like really bright and everything else. Like, yeah, yeah, it's probably a little bright. And uh, it was kind of the first lesson in where there's smoke, there's fire. Mm-hmm. Meaning we, so what started out as like a very, very hint hue of like, you know, not even yellow, just something that looked like not totally clear. Like this was our first run and two months later I would see it on a shelf and some of the product had turned to be like, I don't want to over-exaggerate. It wasn't quite like ginger ale color, but it was like <laughs> definitely had it there. And we were like, oh my gosh. And it turned out that it was clear, but in the distillation process, there was a rusted pipe in mm. one of the things. And just by having the liquid pass through the pipe, it almost just like changed it just a hint and wow. the product moved over time. And so I think my biggest lesson was that we, I wouldn't say we tried to cover it up, but like we just, we weren't forthcoming either with ourselves or other people about it. Mm. And we were kind of like, no, no, that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's supposed to have a little tint as opposed to, you know, oh, it's saleable. It's great. And then it was a little harder to explain when it, you know, was the color of urine versus start out near clear. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right. It's like, do I, do we confess or do we just let this roll over right. and just do it better next time? Right. I mean, it worked out all right because it was such a small first run that we were able to kind of help pull it off the shelves, get it out of there and then, you know, get it replaced with new product. But, you know, a lot of these places will buy a couple of bottles and then never, never makes it on the shelf. So years later, I would occasionally find our first packaging with a bottle. And they're like, is this the same product? I was like, no. And they're like, why does it still say Vive? I'm like, I, I don't know. Yeah, you should throw it. Why don't you just give it to me? I'll take it. <laughs> so your company got acquired. When was it acquired? And, and share that process because that's a really big deal. And that's what, um, you know, a lot of founders, I think, aspire for their own businesses. Sure. And we're slightly bound by a few confidential things, but yeah. I'll share what I can, which is that, so we're acquired by a group out of St. Louis, multi-billion dollar spirits company, shall we say, two and a half years ago now. And I guess if I had a big learning from it, we, we, we wrote a book earlier this year called Shortcut Your Startup that happened to hit the bestseller list. And Amazing. the last chapter Congrats. is, thank you, is all about the exit. So we have a lot to say on it. But I think the first thing that I would say to most people is, you know, we live in a society where all the headlines are about all the fancy companies or the Airbnbs yeah. and whatever else. Yeah. If you're Airbnb, yes, people are literally knocking down your door, rented or owned, to buy your company. For like the vast, vast majority, even if you have a company that's saleable or someone wants, they may not know they want it. They might not know the story. They might have heard about it but got it in the wrong context. Mm-hmm. And so I think like a ton of the acquisitions that happen out there are products that are like nice-to-haves, not need-to-haves. And it was like humbling, but also enlightening to realize V, I mean, short of like creating the next fireball, which, you know, regardless of my opinion on that, that was probably a must have product for someone short of creating the next fireball or maybe even Casa Amigos tequila, almost everything fits in a nice to have, not need to have. And these are people, these are companies that alcohol companies are some of the most profitable companies out there. So I thought, gosh, I can't sell this because no one's beat down my door, even though there had been a few kind of like knocks at the door. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, I just had to do a better job of getting out and telling our story mm. to the right people in the right context while still not being too thirsty, if you will. So right. we talk a lot about in our book about leaving breadcrumbs and kind of like pre-courting your buyers and like, 
oh, you see them at like a, the same trade show and you're like, hey, we should grab a drink or all that stuff. All that seating really came back to pay dividends when it was time to sell because we had some inbound interest and we actually used that to leverage a little bit of our own outbound interest and the combination of those led to a pretty good situation where we had a handful of buyers and it wasn't just one. But I think that's the biggest thing I always take away is that if you're starting a company and you think you might want to sell it, make every decision with that in mind. Doesn't mean that you have to sell it when the day of reckoning comes, but if you do the converse, meaning don't start it thinking you could sell it and make most of the decisions with that in mind, you'll probably never have a chance to sell it versus at least giving yourself going back to, I guess, maybe one of my themes here from the beginning of option value, right? And so I can say that we did a pretty good job of making most decisions if we wanted to sell it. And that puts us in a position where, where thankfully we have multiple offers. Yeah. That's amazing. So you got acquired Mm -hmm. and then you have a company now, M13. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, I, I wish somehow I missed that thing where you wake up the day after you got acquired and go, what am I going to do today? What am I going to eat for breakfast? Yeah. Uh, My brother and I have a bad habit of overcommitting and just jumping into things. So we kind of woke up the next day and we were like, we just felt like we had stuff to do. So we did it. And the interesting part was by the time we sold Vive, we had, had spent some time doing other things, meaning we had a portfolio of a couple dozen angel investments, mostly in consumer, consumer tech. Mm-hmm. Between the two of us, we were probably on six to eight boards, a couple companies that did really well. One that we sold to Pepsi for almost $300 million, um, tech company that sold for something similar. And we were angel investors and things like we put in some of the first million dollars on Ring Video Doorbell, Warby Parker, the glasses I'm wearing, Pinterest, ClassPass, things like that pretty early. And so we started to think, gosh, I could try to start the next Warby Parker for fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. But what would be really interesting is we tend to think we're living in this kind of golden age of consumer tech. So rather than start the next Warby Parker for blank, what if I could start the platform or the machinery such that I could create the next set of consumer tech brands all out of our company M13. So it was like this idea of like, when we were talking about what's tough about being a founder, it's recreating the wheel and seeing so much like information leakage, yet not having a resource or like a a repository where you can go to get answers for some of these things. So we said, why don't we try and solve for both? Why don't we try to create a platform approach using a playbook of repeatable behaviors to kind of institutionalize the process of brand building? And there's obviously no one size fits all, but I think there is, you know, we live in this world of good, better, and best. And most of the time now just being good is not enough. You have to decide what you're best in class at. Yeah. Uh, in our book, we have a chapter that's called do what you do best and outsource the rest. And nice. so that's kind of the key is to say, hey, can we let all these companies, either ones we work with or ones we start, do what they do best. And can they kind of outsource the rest to us? Not literally, because I'm not like an agency, but can they yeah. outsource things that they don't want to do? to us and we can kind of share these are our best practices these are the groups we like and and help them be more efficient both in terms of time and capital so that's what we're doing so we have kind of like three legs to our business one is a couple hundred million dollar consumer tech venture fund mm-hmm. uh, for m13 which is exciting because we're just starting to make investments out of that and nice. then we also have kind of like a hollywood brand development studio where for the last couple of years we've been helping people with their brands because we want to test these theories And now we're going back to making our own brands and then also hopefully doing deals with some larger CPG companies to help innovate and create brands for them, which I think is exciting because it hasn't really been done before. And those two parts of the business are connected by this digital repository that we call our playbook, which we probably need to give it a more creative name, but it's literally a living, breathing digital repository 
that every day gets stronger because everyone who works with me or everyone I come across helps add things to it and it's getting stronger and stronger so I can use it both to make better investment decisions and help our portfolio companies and then help create brands on the other side. And so it's hopefully this flywheel effect of, of that playbook combined with best in class people that will get us to that to that goal. That's amazing. And so the Venture Fund M13, who are some of the portfolio companies and what are some of the projects can you talk about that you guys are working on right now? Well, it's it's all kind of coming soon because we're actually, as we speak, doing a first close on the fund, closing nice. the first first tranche. So officially out of the fund, we have not done anything yet. Mm-hmm. You know, in the past, we've been part of Great Brands, some of which I mentioned where yeah. we've been in Lyft for a long time, you know, some Great female-focused brands like a Daily Harvest, Rothy's, which I would think is probably about the fastest-growing women's shoe brand in the country. A lot of fitness stuff, some marketplace stuff like a Class Pass, Pinterest, things, things of that sort. Awesome. Well, I know we are short for time. We're running out of time. So, um, do you have any last kind of advice you want to give entrepreneurs out there? Last advice. Um, <laughs> the last words. Well, I would say especially I'm going to give this to the ones that are just starting or thinking about starting. It's to always balance. First chapter of our book is called get in the trenches, Mm -hmm. balance getting in the trenches with analysis paralysis, right? Because for sure, if I knew then what I know now about certain things, I never would have gone in it. And some of those have been really successful ventures. So there has to be that like, kind of like ignorance is bliss, Mm -hmm. ignorance bias, but you still have to sharpen your pencil and really know what you're getting into because I, I am watching people now just kind of blindly jump into stuff where I'm like, what about this? And we're like, I've never heard of that company. I'm like, oh, it boy. just tells me you like didn't do any like Googling before you started, right. you know? Oh, boy. So balancing those two, I think is the key and finding the right dosage of that while hopefully still leaning into more things than not is probably the way I would encourage most people to go. Yeah. It's one of those, being an entrepreneur is like, it's like, being like a hopeless romantic, like better to have loved and to lost than never have lost, uh, never have loved at all. So I, I think most of my friends who have even been failed entrepreneurs are happier that they tried it, failed, and went, gosh, well, that was cool. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, but I am not doing that again. I am better <laughs> off being a right, whatever. Right, so, They're like, I'm done. I did it. Yeah, I'm like, out. I'm a corporate person. I'm like, you are. And I could have told you that before, but you need to find out for yourself. I jumped off the cliff. I'm done. Right. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, because one of the things, you know, it's a marathon, right? And I think a lot of the industry treats it like a sprint. And so I don't know if you have any advice on that really quick around, you know, how to sustain all of that. Yeah. Well, as we were talking earlier, I mean, I I think it's just about knowing thyself for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds like you too. I mean, to really put your head down and work on something really hard for like three to five years is a lot. I mean, yeah. because if you're going at like a cruising altitude, fine, I think that's doable. If you're going at, you know, a breakneck pace, mm-hmm. five years of doing that, I will never... I will try sitting here right now. I don't think I ever want to put myself in a position where I'm locked into something for more than three to five years of busting. You know what? Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of what I got before yeah. I empty the gas tank. Right. And I will happily do that in spurts, but I want to always kind of be in a position to reevaluate my options. And it doesn't mean I don't stay at the same company or start the same thing. It just might mean that my role gets re-engineered. But I think, I think managing burnout's a big thing because- yeah. You know, if you could find a way in, and even my former company, Goldman Sachs, is finding this because the culture was always, oh, you hire analysts for two, three years, and then they leave 95%. That's mm. the thing. But if you could even just retain 5 or 10% more of those people, you save so much money in hiring and recruiting yeah. at the next level that it's really worth it. And so, right. I mean, think of anyone out there who has employees. If your average employee stayed two years, if you could 
move all those to three years, much less something greater, you'd be on to something. Right. So what do you think it takes? Is it working out, eating right? Like, What does it take to sustain that kind of work ethic for so long? I think... Meditation? Yeah. I mean, I think it certainly takes like the balance. I think it takes the culture. And I think, you know, people today, because they are so like ADD, you have to find ways to kind of like continue to motivate them or re-engage them. And so I don't think you have a very long leash with most millennial hires these days of like, I call it the three bad day rule. Like if you're really hard on for three days straight, then they be like, can we talk? Like, I'm not sure this is a place for me. Like I'm feeling disconnected. I was like, yeah, but anyways, it's a story (laughs) for another time. But I think the point is, is that you do have to find ways. It's harder than ever with the war for talent to engage, re-engage and kind of keep the culture high. Because if you lose the culture and we've had it happen a few times with some of our ventures, it takes, it's like working out, it takes twice as much effort to get it back than it did to, to get it the first time. And so that's, that's the hard part. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. If you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on climbing. Keep on climbing.